Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. All the time I get emails from brands that want me to write about something sustainable. And literally 100% of the time I'm like, I'm not even going to consider this unless Rachel gives it a thumbs up. That is yeah. so sweet. <laughs> you <laughs> made my day. You made my day. You need like, we need like the Rachel Kibbe index. Like, yeah. Sorry, Hig. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just Rachel now. <laughs> it's a different Kibbe. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business in the Wall Street Journal. This week, Walmart is getting serious about Made in the USA with a new exclusive supplier agreement with Jordan-based Classic Fashion. It's opening a new production facility in Santa Ana, California, a cut-and-sew factory, in fact. And it's exclusively supplying its apparel to Walmart, which wants to uh, make its production closer to its stores. Classic Fashion supplies its apparel to the likes of Adidas, Tommy Hilfiger, and American Apparel, and just this week had its ribbon-cutting ceremony for the Cut and Sew Company. We like what we see here and are hopeful it's a good sign for garment workers in the U.S. too. Then we have to talk about Shein again. We've described again and again how unsustainable its business practices are, and now it seems its $100 billion valuation is unsustainable too. According to a recent report in the Financial Times, Shein's valuation has fallen by 30% to somewhere between $65 and $85 billion. That may seem like quite a haircut, but remember, it was only two years ago that Shein was raising money at a $15 billion valuation. Talk about yo-yoing. This is a growth stock, no matter what its value is today, it's showing no signs of lo- slowing down, including ramping up distribution in the U.S. We also have a guest today, Doug Greenberg of Guardrobe, who's joining us to talk about how better to care for your clothes. We've touched on this before, and our listeners have had plenty of questions, so we thought we'd bring on a real expert to talk us through how to keep our clothing and accessories looking beautiful longer. That equals sustainability for us. It lets you keep your clothes longer, keeps them in the kind of shape that's perfect for resale or handing down. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's good. I have a little cold today, so um, excuse any coughs directly into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we have really good editors who will handle that for us. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to hate me this week. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> and the CEO of Thrilling, Shilla Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from South Salem, New York. Hey, Shilla. Hi there. I also have a cough, so we're we're just. <laughs> I understand this week. you have somebody else with a cough in your house today. Mm-hmm. My little three-year-old who was sent home with a cough, COVID negative, no other symptoms, wearing a mask, and still sent oh, home my. with a cough. Other parents will understand my frustration. So frustrating, man. So let's start with some good news, you guys. Did you see the New Yorker piece on Trader Joe's helping to revive the jute industry in India? 
it just put a huge smile on my face because, I mean, I actually have one of those jute Trader Joe's bags. And then it turns out that Trader Joe's and a lot of other bag companies and brands that we know in the U.S. are making these jute shoppers. And it's reviving this age-old industry in India where they grow they grow jute in between the rice seasons. So it keeps the land going and regenerates the land and employs all these people and It's a biodegradable fiber so that uh, apparently one of the things that's causing people to want to do this is that brands are wanting to get away from plastic bags. Yeah. And and nylon bags and things like that, so. Yeah, and we know we've that's exciting. We've seen those single-use bags get replaced with single-use plastic get replaced with more durable plastic. Yes, bags. great. And I have to say, when I was working in used clothing collection, part of what we would collect is mountains and mountains of those super heavy, sort of like almost Teflon-like reusable plastic bags, and like. Yeah. No one wants them anymore. They've got some Nobody grocery stores logo. Those. Yeah. yeah. Nobody reuses those. You things. have to, or you do, but you have like bags within bags within bags in yep. your house and you just don't need them anymore. So yep. I'm happy to hear it. Rachel, you had another one. You wanted to to talk a little bit, I think, about the textile exchange report that came out four or five days ago. Yeah. So, so I, I full disclosure, I haven't had a chance to read it and I really want to because their uh, reporting is really important. They're a very important organization. They do a lot of great work. I think their CEO is from um, a family of cotton farmers in Texas, I believe, oh. uh, Larea Pepper, and they largely started to help support uh, the U.S. cotton industry. Um, have since grown to do a lot more things. And they just um, gave they, a huge they, thumbs down to the fashion industry's efforts. Yeah. To, uh, they did. Yeah. And rightly so. So so basically the top the the biggest takeaway is that last year they reported that global fiber production hit an all-time high. 113 million tons of of fiber were produced globally oh, and it's man. expected to grow to 149 million tons by 2030, which the problem with all of this is it's totally out of bounds of that 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway. But their top line suggestions I'm seeing in press right now um, are to reduce growth through polyester recycling and um, accelerating transition to preferred fibers. I guess I was a little disappointed. Shilla, you would be with me, I think, on this one as what about reuse? What about rental? What about repair? I mean, I know that their their organization focuses specifically on fibers, but I think at this point we have to take a holistic view on on really if we're going to put out reports on how to stay within planetary boundaries. I I think we can't afford to stay within just our niche areas of focus and sustainability. I think we really have to zoom out and say, well, the the system needs a change, so we need to keep fibers in circulation for a long. Plus, it gives us the opportunity to tell people to darn their socks. Always. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they, they talk about less than 1% of the global fiber market came from recycled textiles. Although, and they say it, you know, greenwashing gives the impression that that's otherwise. And I think, honestly, reading the summary of the report gave me some panic a little bit. Like, you, you, yeah. you constantly feel the urgency. And it's, we're not moving nearly as fast enough at the scale that we need to. Like, it's obviously we have to grapple with the with the fact that we can't have the same growth objectives. Like, we just can't be producing more. And we have to completely change business models, to Rachel's point. Um, and I think that was part of the reason why we, we all really like the Selfridges announcement where they said, you know, half of our transactions are going to be repair, reuse, recycle, refill. Speaking of sea changes, there's something else. This is actually more, um, I think we see this as good news. 
Walmart just announced that it's building up it with a partner a cut and sew apparel factory in Santa Ana, California, just south of me here, where our our um, producer Cecily is hailing from right now. You know, how many headlines, how many decades have we been wringing our hands over apparel manufacturing departing the United States and going overseas? And I personally spend a lot of time talking to American designers who are wringing their hands while they're waiting for samples to come from overseas and, you know, get they're spending FedEx money shipping samples or waiting for deliveries from across the Atlantic. It's very costly and time-consuming. It slows the whole fashion calendar down. And Walmart has has decided that they want to cut and sew in the United States, which people have been saying can't be done as a dying business. And they're also trying to source textiles that are being manufactured close to where the cut and sew facility is. So they they want to cut back on the, the cost um, and hopefully the carbon output of shipping. Yay? Nay? I think it's a yay. Um, I mean, part of my questions are, it doesn't say anything regarding volume or... or um, so I, I don't really have a sense of scale. They said they talked about a couple hundred um, employees that they imagine up to five five hundred um, when they're at full scale, which is a big factory. Five hundred people is a lot, right? So, um, so I, I'm not really sure in terms of Walmart's total production what that represents. Um, I know that um, the CEO, US CEO, last year wrote a blog post saying that he that they will spend three hundred and fifty billion dollars in the next decade on creating a supply chain in the US. And so um, they are. They seem, you know, very focused on that, and and um, they're they're walking the walk now. So I think I think it's promising, um, and obviously reducing carbon footprint from shipping overseas to um, domestically. But I'm also wondering, Rachel, your perspective, just because you know it isn't necessarily better just because it's made in the U.S. Like you also have to make sure that people are still paid fairly, that they're still employing. Yeah. Um, sustainable production yeah. methods and practices. So it, it's um, to me, it seems like there's more to understand before we fully cheer what's happening here. Yeah, I think there's always more to understand. And as we see, um, workers here in the United States are, are rapidly forming unions because mm-hmm. they aren't necessarily getting um, treated as they should be. But I think all in all, I mean, overall, I think this is a good thing. I think it's a vote of confidence. It's interesting. It's in California, one of the only states we have a garment labor rights workers bill specifically. So I think it's a market indicator to me when a company like Walmart does something like this. Although I do have to say, I hope it's not just a headline that we don't hear much more about uh, because Stitch Fix uh, this week also announced that they um, are shutting down a factory in the U.S. They had um, a cut and sew and knitting mill in Pennsylvania that they acquired in 2017 um, Montan Mills uh, that they produced, uh, that they purchased to produce sustainable and size inclusive clothing, a private label for them, and they just closed it down. So that was a loss of 56 jobs. So this is like two, two steps forward, one step back right now to try to get, you know, more apparel manufacturing jobs off the ground here. And, and, and to your point, Christina, it, it says like, 125 jobs in the next year at the Walmart facility and reaching 350 over the next five years. That's not a huge amount of jobs, but if this becomes a greater trend uh, among uh, businesses like Walmart, I think that's important. My guess is probably, by the way, Santa Ana, California um, has a has easy access to a big immigrant workforce, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons yeah. they're choosing that. We can't ever seem to go for an episode without talking about Shein. 
Um, and here, here we are again. Um, their valuation has gone down a startling amount. It, it actually blows my mind. I'd love to hear what you guys think about this because I can't even grasp what the $100 million valuation was based on. To see a company— $100 billion? $100 billion, Sorry, did I say million? That'd be easy. No, $100 <laughs> yeah. billion, Right. Thank you. It's like the tech bubble when everybody frothy. got— so, yeah, this is a but it's a manufacturing business. Like, what is that? Is it because it's so much sold on TikTok that they were giving it like the, the tech treatment? Yeah, I think it's it's very reflective. Their journey is very reflective of what's going on in general in uh, apparel and consumer right now. Um, so they had a, a sky high valuation of hundred billion, um, and now it's down to sixty five billion ish. Um, is kind of what what's what we're hearing. But again, it was, to, to Rachel's point, it was a very frothy market last year. Lots of folks were getting super high valuations. And honestly, in the last 12 months, a lot of their peers are down by similar amounts. Inditex, which owns Zara, is down 40% over the last 12 months. H&M is down 50% over the last um, 12 months. Boohoo is down mm-hmm. 80%. So I don't necessarily think um, this is kind of the death knell for Shein. Um, and it's more kind of reflective of um, how the market is trading generally. I suspect um, in this market where consumers are even more price conscious, I bet that they will actually have a pretty solid year. That's interesting. Actually, given how you just framed it with Boohoo down 80%, it almost sounds like there's potentially still froth in there. They're going to have to reprice their IPO, right? Yeah. They haven't IPO'd. Yeah. They haven't IPO'd, right. We heard about this last week from Sarah with Fashion File, I think, who talked about timing the market in terms of thinking about an IPO. This, this This is a very uncertain market. Um, so I think companies are, are not super, um, if they can hold off, I think they'd prefer to hold off. Yeah, it looks, it looks like uh, from anything I've read about it that they wanted to IPO faster uh, maybe six months ago and now they're saying, yeah, maybe 2024. Um, but they still brought in $15.7 billion in 2021 in revenue. So they're doing fine. We should remind people, by the way, so Shein is a fast fashion company that's based in China, but it does not sell in China. And the U.S. is its biggest market. It's um, a beloved by Gen Z. It's ultra-fast fashion, ultra-cheap fashion. Um, And so they've got a distribution center in Indiana that they are now planning to expand. They're apparently looking at multiple sites in California for distribution centers. You know, they they are not done with expanding in the U.S., Okay, remember our friend's voicemail about the laundry and how to best take care for his clothes sustainably? We had a few answers, but I thought it would be good to bring on an expert. Doug Greenberg is from Guardrobe by Uovo. If you don't know Guardrobe, it's billed foremost as a luxury garment storage, but it's more than that. And Doug is here to talk to us about how they care for the clothes and to give us advice on how we can give our own clothes that treatment at home. Welcome, Doug. Oh, thanks for the kind words, Christina. And it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I, I'm going to start by saying, I, you, you don't know this, Doug, but my closet is different than it was before I first interviewed you, which was years ago about some, it was actually a different subject, but um, we, we went way off piste in that interview. And I will never forget you having a long rant about wire coat hangers. And I'm pretty sure I was like, oh yeah, they're terrible, right? I had a closet full of them, <laughs> but I don't anymore. <laughs> After talking to you. you. You hit the nail on the head. You know, people talk about guardrobe. And yes, um, we cater to, um, you know, wealthy individuals with, with haute couture and, and uh, designer pieces in their closet. But uh, most of the strategies and, and, uh, that we employ here 
Uh, it doesn't matter if it's Hermes or H&M. Um, it's really the same thing, uh, protecting textiles. You know, that's what garde means in old French is protect clothing. Um, that's what we do. Uh, you know, that's sort of our lane. We stay in it. Um, we really don't have any competitors. Um, but uh, protecting clothing is what we're here to talk about. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, answering your questions. So let's go back to the beginning, because when I first heard about garde I had no idea anything existed. I mean, I know that there are furriers, particularly in New York, that store your furs over the summer in cold storage. But you guys take that to another level. Could, could, could you just kind of wheel back here and tell us, you know, how garde started? We started in 2001, actually. Um, there was a dire need in New York in particular because people live in apartments and um, they don't have uh, endless closet space. Um, so our founder was actually a, a woman. She worked in the PR industry. She uh, was also a flamenco dancer in her personal wow. time. So you can imagine behind her closet doors, um, you know, she's got the pantsuits and the skirt suits and then these extravagant gowns. She just needed to offload some uh, off-season pieces, uh, f- uh, you know, during the winter uh, just to free up that closet space. And she found that there really weren't any options in a city like New York. You figure you'd be able to find anything. Um, really, the only options at that time were your local dry cleaner. And so that's what she did. Unfortunately, when she uh, needed to retrieve something in the middle of the winter, uh, all of her uh, warm weather clothes were there. They said, you can come and pick it up. They brought her down into the basement. It was dingy and dirty, and they hadn't cleaned her clothes yet as they were supposed to. And she just said, there has to be a better way. And so, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, garde was born right there, the idea. And so, you know, even 20 plus years later, what we do is uh, provide a on-demand uh, delivery service with off-site museum quality storage. And the way we bring it all together is our Cyber Closet app. So our members, rather than schlepping down to a storage unit uh, with a key and, and a locker, um, we come to their home. It's a white glove pickup. They don't lift a finger. We bring their clothing, shoes, accessories, and furs to our facility where they're you know, treated like royalty. Uh, and we catalog and photograph everything professionally onto the cyber closet. So when our members need something back, it's kind of like shopping online. They simply log in, password-protected app, and then uh, they, they fill their cart. And, and we provide same-day ready-to-wear delivery as well as worldwide shipping. Um, and over the years, we've expanded our business to add different services and to cater to different types of folks, including design houses, uh, you know, legendary heritage design houses like Oscar de la Renta, Carolina Herrera, and others, uh, as well as uh, entertainers with costumes. And then your average New Yorker who just sort of needs what our founder needed, which is seasonal storage. Um, this time of year, we're delivering fall, winter, and picking up spring, summer, and then in the spring, uh, just the opposite. And you're you're you've got facilities. I know you're you're in California, right? Correct. I, I work out of our California office. We we headquarters is in New York. We also have an office in Palm Beach, and we're in the process of expanding to Dallas, Aspen, San Francisco, uh, basically the wealth centers and the fashion centers in America. Uh, that's where um, we're needed. You know, we're a need based service. Can you can you give us like three things that anybody can do? You said it could be haute couture and H or H and M. What should we all be doing in our closets to make our clothes stay in shape better and last longer? Yeah, I think the the most important thing is level temperature and humidity. The the worst thing you can do is keep your wardrobe in a place where there's uh, 
big fluctuations. In, in, uh, so people always say to me, what temperature do you guys use? As if it's like an inside secret or, or what, what temperature do the museum store at? It really doesn't matter, in my opinion, if it's 68 or 71, as long as it's level. You know, that's the key. And then the humidity level, uh, you know, storing your clothes like in Miami or something like that is probably the worst place because you get the drastic changes in humidity and temperature. In addition, you get the salinity in the sea air, which is very harsh on textiles. I mean, it will rust the gate outside your home and uh, think about what it'll do to your beaded gown. So, um, you know, location, 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 uh, steady temperature and uh, steady humidity and, uh, you know, air purification, if you do, or if you're lucky enough to live by the water, uh, air purification is critical. So what does that mean for your facilities? Are, are they rigged in a special way that's kind of proprietary to you, or are they similar to other industries that need sort of climates that are maintained throughout the year? Our climate is similar to like an art storage facility where we go to great lengths that other storage companies may not. We only have textiles. So our number one uh, fear, if you will, and, and our client's fear and what we protect the clothing from is material damaging insects. So we go to great lengths uh, that other storage companies really it's, it's not really their concern because it's not managed storage the way ours is. We're sort of responsible for the clothing. Uh, we can't return it with, with moth holes, so we have to protect, uh, you know, make sure the environment is sterile and, and material damage insect-free. And when I say that, primarily we're talking about clothes moths, but there's also silverfish, there's carpet beetles. Far too often, our members find us after having a calamity, like in a basement or an attic or a standard storage unit, and they'll say there must be a better solution. And unfortunately, they find us. And, and like you said, Christina, it, it, uh, the, the coverage we created was through AIG Private Client Group, and, and they developed a, a coverage called Wearable Collectibles, uh, the first uh, in, in the world uh, for, you know, like an art collector would have a policy. You know, now this is uh, for wearable art. And um, one of the, the thoughtful coverages that's in there is reweaving in, in, in the event that you get um, uh, moth damage. So it, it's a thoughtful coverage, and it really was born out of the aftermath of uh, Superstorm Sandy um, when I discovered that um, there was a couture collector in the Hamptons who was relying on her homeowner's insurance, uh, like contents coverage which excludes flood. And of course, Sandy was considered a flood because the water came in and destroyed her couture and she was rejected in her claim. Oh, wow. And so I said, uh, there has to be a better way. You know, Gardro, we work with several hundred well-heeled uh, collectors who behind their closet doors have assets that they should be able to protect just like an art collector or wine collector. Um, so, you know, that is part of the guard robe experience. It's not just about, you know, that we help you protect your clothes and we deliver them and ship them around the world. That, that's primarily it. But we also guide our members if they need appraisals, insurance. Um, as you know, an Hermes bag might retail for 30 some odd thousand, but they sell at auction for over 300,000 in some cases. So if you protect the textiles, they can increase in value significantly, uh, certainly more than, than the stock market the last few years. There was a story recently about Hermes bags being one of the best um, investments uh, uh, someone could make. Yeah, Hermes is extraordinary with that. You mentioned um, all the bugs that can ruin your clothes. Um, so how do you feel about mothballs? 
Mothballs um, should never, ever uh, be in the conversation. I mean, uh, uh, you know, they should have gone out of the conversation with great-grandma's furs. I mean, um, goodness, they you're, smell you're, so You're insulting bad. grandmothers all that around the world. Is actually, this is shocking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like that's the smell of visiting grandma's house, right? But... Um, that smell is actually fumes, right? And those fumes are way, way, way too strong. Uh, they, they can damage delicate fabrics, especially if they're like, uh, if you have your stuff like in a dry cleaner bag or something where that air is trapped in there. Uh, don't even think about it. There are uh, f- pheromone moth traps that are far more effective. Essentially, they attract the male. Um, it, and m- what most people don't know about moths, it's not the flying ones that eat your clothes. It's actually the larvae, the babies. So mm. what will happen is uh, the male and the female uh, will consummate, and, and they'll uh, the female will go into like a dark, quiet, you know, cashmere underarm where they'll find some food for their babies because there might have been some perspiration in there and there's something, um, some protein for them to eat. And they'll lay their eggs and it's actually the babies that, that that's, they feed off the um, bacteria on the garment. Uh, so that's why everything should be clean before it's stored. But yeah, it's, uh, if you have the pheromone moth trap, it's irresistible to the male. And uh, what you do is you just check the traps. If you don't see any males in the moth traps, you don't have a moth problem. Has anybody ever brought things in that brought a moth problem into your facility? I imagine that's a issue. It's a great question. <laughs> yeah, yes. And that's actually how we first, you know, about 17, 18 years ago, that was sort of when we decided um, uh, to sort of morph our business from sort of a utility service for, you know, young urban professionals who live in studio apartments and need the closet space we sort of morphed into a luxury service provider dealing with couture collectors and fashion designers and providing, like I said, the highest level of textile preservation and storage. Um, you know, uh, yes, uh, uh, we were given uh, a completely moth-infested garment, and um, we sort of said, well, our entire facility uh, is now um, oh my gosh. at risk, uh, and we can never do this again. So we sort of learned our lesson and, and established protocols. Uh, now, if we're in, a, in one of our members' homes picking up garments and they either tell us or we see that there's a moth issue, they immediately go to get frozen. Um, that will kill the larvae. And um, then you clean the clothes. And, and um, you know, if it, hopefully the damage wasn't too bad. They go to get frozen. So you don't send Where? them a dry cleaner. Yeah. The, I mean, can anybody send their clothes to be frozen? The, the <laughs> thing is, our customers sending everything in their closet to the dry cleaner could be a million dollars. Yeah, yeah uh, right. You know, so um, sending it to the freezer, you just fill the freezer and it's one, you know, everything goes in and it's just, uh, it's not inexpensive, uh, but it's a fraction of the cost of dry cleaning. Uh, and um, a lot of our members are a bit, put off by having things cleaned unless they absolutely need to be cleaned. Obviously, if they had moth larvae, it's strongly recommended. It's kind of gross. But um, they've had they've all had really bad experiences with dry yeah. cleaners destroying yeah. things. And so um, that's almost like a third rail topic is sending everything to the dry cleaner. That's not going to go over very well with most of them. Assuming that most folks um, may not necessarily have access to your service or, or uh, willingness to invest in service because they don't have wearable art collections. But as you said, 
a lot of the things you learn can be applied to H&M t-shirts. So I'm, I'm curious, um, back to where we started, which is around hangers. Um, so I, I've instinctively known not to put things on wire hangers because eventually they develop those weird corners in the shoulders. And so I'm thinking, uh-oh, that can't be right. But beyond that, I'm I'm kind of clueless about what are you supposed to fold? What are you supposed to hang and on what? Or what are you supposed to, um, instead of hanging like uh uh, fold over a hanger. If you could, are there simple rules that you can share around that? Yeah. Well, I think the most important rule is any stretchable fabric should never be hung, right? Because gravity will do its thing. Any heavily embellished, anything that's a bias cut, never hang them because they'll distort, and um, that's you know just damaging the the garment uh, irreparably, irreparably in in wow. most cases. Bias um, cut, even bias cut, should be folded. Anything stretchable, yeah. any stretchable fabric should be folded. So you mean like knits, like even like a cotton yeah, T-shirt? Never put knits on hangers. Um, not, yeah, never. In terms of what hangers to use, you know, aesthetics is really important for a lot of our members. But what I try uh, to exp- make sure they understand is you can't use uniform hangers for your entire closet. Like you said, uh, it doesn't mm. have to be a wire hanger. It could be those huggable or, you know, the space-saving hangers and uh, they will give you the rabbit ears on the shoulders that you were just talking about. And they also don't provide enough support. Uh, so like a, like a winter coat, you should always have it on a strong, wide shoulder hanger um, to sort of um, offset the weight, you, you know. And um, I think the, the, the golden rule is use the proper hanger for the right type of garment. So there's pantsuit hangers, there's skirt suit hangers. There, you know, uh, you, you, some people like to hang their pants from the hem. And, I, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a great way to, to protect the textiles. So, um, you know, there's no, there's really no golden rule, but, but you, you really should have a variety of hanger types in your home. You should never use the wire hangers, not only because of they're thin, and, uh, but they can stain the garments over time because the, mm. they're sort of painted over uh, and they'll rust. And um, yeah, so th- th- there are a variety of, of fabulous uh, hanger suppliers out there. And uh, I could potentially put together like a list for your for yeah. your listeners, uh, and we could post oh, it. Oh, yes, That'd be great. great for idea. your listeners, quote unquote, sitting yes. in this room right <laughs> Particularly now. Particularly the three of us. <laughs> I'm like looking. I've got my closet behind me. I'm like, oh shit, I've got like one type of hanger. I gotta go. <laughs> At Guardrobe, I'm sort of uh, uniquely positioned is that, um, you know, our, our members are really savvy and they've traveled the world and they've been lucky enough to meet like seamstresses and reweavers and all these like specialty service providers, custom hanger companies and things like that. So, you know, uh, we see a lot of that and the hanger is sort of a, a super important part of protecting your wardrobe because things may be on a hanger for an extremely long time and, um you want to make sure it's on the proper hanger uh, and that it should be hung in the first place, like I said. I'm sure you don't cram everything together, right? There's got to be some air in there. Why is air important and how far apart do you hang things? We, we do the one-inch rule at Gardrobe. And in general, that's what I tell our members. You know, try and keep some space because, uh, you know, these are all natural fabrics, right? They need to breathe. Uh, if they're, That's why I always say take the dry cleaner bag off immediately. Uh, they trap the air there. They were only intended to get you from the dry cleaner to your home. If you want to use it for folding into a suitcase or whatever, fine. But you know, it should not be stored for any extended period of time. Uh, in that dry cleaner bag that all all natural fabrics need to breathe. The other thing to remember is it's called dry cleaning, but it's actually not 
dry. There is a solvent. And even though it feels dry when it's returned to you, there is still some solvent in there that that takes time to dissipate. If you leave that dry cleaner bag on, those gases sort of hang out in that bag and they will uh, cause uh, damage to the fabrics. That's where you end up putting on a garment and you're like, I only wore it once and went to dry cleaner and you left it. And then like it'll separate at the shoulder and you're like, oh, this was poorly constructed. Actually, no, you broke down the fibers in the shoulder by keeping it in that sort of gas fume filled uh, a dry cleaner bag. Oh, wow. So take those off immediately. Always keep space. Most important thing to know is dye transferring, right? So your leathers are dyed, right? You know, there's there's no pink cows out there. So uh, your suede's are dyed. Your denim is dyed. Anything that's dyed should not be next to another dyed item in the closet. So that's where you're ending up with dye transferring. Like you'll put a pair of jeans next to your suede coat, they rub against together. Dye transferring is almost impossible for even the best dry cleaners to fix. So you want to wow. either use um, some tissue or a garment bag or just keep those things um, in separate areas of the closet. And, and you know, if you do the one-inch rule, uh, you really won't have an issue. We absolutely positively tell our members, do not cram. A lot of people say to us, well, I don't need your service. I have plenty of room, you know, but then we go over there, oh, <laughs> it's crammed in there. And, you know, you're not really doing yourself any favors uh, by stuffing every garment you've ever owned into your closet at one time. Um, you know, if, if you have the means, uh, you know, a service like Guardrobe is a great way to free up uh, unused space in your closet as well as protected textiles. Like I said, uh, everything should be cleaned before it's stored, uh, but you don't necessar necessarily have to clean everything after each wear. But if you wear something and then you, it, it becomes in the off season, make sure it's not mixed in uh, with the unclean pieces, right? Because then you're sort of uh, ruining the, um, you're sort of introducing uh, potentially some bacteria and other things to the closet. So um, what I always suggest to our members is if you want to wear something twice before having clean, that's fine, but keep them separate from the actually clean items in your closet. That leads really naturally to the next question. I know you focus mostly on kind of preservation. Um, do you have any rules to follow around cleaning, um, around how often should something be cleaned? We had a conversation around denim last week. Um and what versus spot cleaned, um, when to take it to a dry cleaners or not. There's there's some mm -hmm. debate around that as even. Um, any any perspective you can share? My perspective is a bit unique because of the folks we work with. Um, there's only about a dozen couture level dry cleaners in the entire nation. So if you're if you own those type of pieces, you really have to have a relationship with one of these cleaners. Um, for, for your average person, I think the most important, you know, for, for, from from our perspective, which is you know, storing and preserving, you know, it, it, make sure it's clean before it's stored for an extended period of time. You know how things, you, you'll take out a garment, and then there's yellowing under the arm, and you're like, what? It, it's called oxidation, okay? So when you take a bite of an apple, uh, there's sugar in the apple, right? And then it yellows. It's the same exact thing. It, it, the oxygen, uh, the sugar, it yellows. And so what, what's happening with your garment, it's perspiration, uh, it's it's body oils, it's uh, lotion from your hands, it's per, it, sometimes it's perfume or hairspray. Um, those things are all getting on the garment, but it may look clean, but then you put it away and then all of a sudden you see, oh man, I must have put on hairspray and it's all over the shoulders and stuff like that. Uh, these th this is what in the industry we call invisible stains that we're sort of expert at identifying and we'll tell our clients, hey, 
this needs to be cleaned. And even if they think it's clean, yeah, you might be able to wear it again. Uh, it's not it's not necessarily an odor or a stain, uh, but it does have um, you know perspiration, body oils, uh, the the hairspray, uh, perfume, and all of those things. Over time, uh, it will uh, uh, damage the garment, damage the fabric, and create the stains. So, what do you ask your dry cleaner? I mean, you know, if I had a feather skirt, I would absolutely know I have to go to one of those dry cleaners. There's actually one in Pasadena near where I live. Um, sometimes people have to ship them. But I've I've got clothes. I have a sequined Dries Van Noten skirt that probably I'm thinking should be cleaned. And I is that an is that a couture kind of thing because it has sequins on it? Or can I take that to my regular dry cleaner? He's a really great guy, by the way. I've used him for years. And what do I ask him if, about whether or not he can handle that? It's a great question. What, what what the best dry cleaners will tell you, what separates them is they have multiple solvents, different solvents for different fabrics, for different stains, for different types of garments. Your typical dry cleaner on the corner will, you, you know, they all used to use perk, right? That was the, and that's the one that everyone's up in arms about because it's terrible for the environment. So they created the green earth, but the green earth won't necessarily clean all your garments. It's less harsh, but it, it's not going to get everything clean. So the best dry cleaners, they'll have the perk, They'll have the green earth. And then there's another one that came out from Germany that, that's all the rage now. I believe it's K4. Uh, so the best dry cleaners, uh, that's really what you want to ask. Like, how many solvents do you have? Like, if they don't have the ability, if they're putting everything in the same uh, solvent in the same machine, <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it, you know, they're only going to get 90-some-odd percent of the things cleaned properly. Um, there's a, there is a better way to do it, and that's by taking it to a savvy cleaner. Now, these are not going to be your 24-hour cleaners and your quick turnaround because what they're trying to do is get enough garments to fill up the machine uh, with this solvent so it's not going to be your, your, your one-hour cleaner. Uh, they're not going to run the machine with just one garment in it because that's extremely costly and wasteful. So having a, a cleaner with multiple who, – who can sort of – Look at your garment and say, this needs this, as opposed to just saying, put it in with everything else. That, that's what I would recommend. What do you ask so that you find out? I mean, you say, how many solvents which do you solvents use? Which solvents do you use? Yeah. Oh, okay. Which solvents do you use? Yeah. Do you have K4? Do you have Green Earth? Do you use Perk? And if you're someone who's really environmentally conscious, who's listening to this program, uh, you probably wouldn't want to use someone with Perk. That said, something heavily soiled, something that you're, you know, <laughs> a body tanner and they fell down in a puddle or something, you know, Perk is the one that's going to get it out. I didn't even, I thought Perk was not legal. Maybe that's just, isn't it In certain illegal? states, there, oh. there, but I, I believe it's um, not 100% gone yet. In, in um, like, okay. like There's still cleaners that use it exclusively and swear by it because they've been using it forever. Uh, and they swear that, you know, they can clean anything with Perk. Uh, but the, the best dry cleaners uh, tell me um, you got to have multiple solvents and you got to have specialists in working with those solvents. And the other thing... Clean by hand, French hand cleaning, French hand laundering, whatever you want to call it. I was just going to ask you about that. Can you, I used to only dry clean and then it, it was just too expensive. And then I once or twice snuck some things into the wool light and figured, oh my God, they weren't, they're not destroyed. I've been paying like $25 a, a pop at least to get these things dry cleaned. And I could have just been hand washing them the whole time. Some garments haven't gone over as well, but I'm wondering if you have some overall guidelines. Can you, for instance, hand clean a tailored jacket? 
I believe so. I, I think the, what, what I'm really getting at is the best dry cleaners hmm. clean a lot of things by hand. So I'm, I'm not so much talking about DIYing uh, here. Uh, that's not our expertise. You know, okay. we, we don't clean okay. anything at Garden right. We You're not doing Molite in the back room? <laughs> oh, I mean, we do do laundry uh, for our, for, we, we provide a travel service for um, like multiple homeowners and people who live in Hong Kong and the Middle East and they fly in and, and, they we give them their wardrobe at their hotel and then they fly home and we do all their laundry. So we do do some laundry, but um, in terms of uh, cleaning by hand, it's more like French hand laundry, which is um, a, you know like a, a skill, a trade uh, that is almost like a dying trade, almost like reweaving. But um, the best dry cleaners will have you know will be cleaning by hand. A lot of the couture would never go in a machine because it couldn't handle it. It couldn't it, the heat. It can't handle the drying or any of that. Uh, you have to remember. Most designers, they're creating things solely, uh, you know, for the look, for for the beauty, and uh, you know, for the red carpet. But they're not thinking about, all right, well, how is my customer who pays fourteen thousand dollars for this top going to clean it after they wear it? I can vouch for that. I've asked so many designers, how are you going to dry clean that? And I one hundred percent give me a total shocked blank look. It did not occur to them how somebody would. They're just thinking about that one use that's going to be worn once. It's never going to go in the machine and uh, do well. So uh, that's another question to ask. You know, clean by hand. Do you do it? And, you know, who does it? And how long have they been working there? Have we failed to ask you for any really significant tip that we should hear? I I think something that I see all the time uh, is uh, sun fading. So uh, there'll be like a, a, a skylight or a window in the closet. And it's everyone's like, great. It's you know, it could dra- you know, it's nice and bright and all that. People don't think about how harsh the sun is, and so every day as it's going by your window and shining on your handbags or your garments, um, it, it's sun fading, and, and things um, you know with blues and purples will fade very quickly because you know Roy G. Biv anything on the violet side th- those fade first, and. What you'll find is, you know, the pieces that are sort of hanging out from under the shelf uh, and their shoulders are exposed, they're going to be lighter than the ones that were uh, under the shelf. Um, And so um, putting like a UV filter, something that you can get at Home Depot for $3, something as simple as that um, uh, could save you from dye fading, uh, uh, sun fading your clothes. Um, You know, that's one that that, um, I see all the time. The other thing is uh, moisture. Moisture, uh, when it comes to hygroscopic materials, uh, which almost all garments are, you know, natural fibers that take on moisture means that they're hygroscopic. Leather, suede, cotton, you know. So what happens is I'll see a home where the closet or like uh, the coat closet will be right next to the shower. Uh, and then there's steam, right? And then there's steam. And then it's you're introducing the steam into the closet in, where the hygroscopic materials are taking on that moisture. Um, that's a recipe for your shoes getting mildew and moldy, your leathers and suede's. Um, and, and people will say, oh, how did it happen? It's, you know, it's the proximity uh, to the shower. <laughs> talk, about, talk to architects then. Yeah, so, uh, you know, in, in all of our literature, you know, we talk about, you know, no basements, no attics, no place with the where the temperature and humidity humidity fluctuate, um, and um, you know, like I said, always use breathable garment bags or, or breathable canvas uh, sweater boxes and things like that. It protects from the insects, but you cannot have it 
you know, like the worst thing you could possibly do is those like where you suck the air out, um, you know, for the space saver. Those are oh, yeah. those are only for like your your ski gear, uh, you know, stuff that could handle anything. You, you would never want to choke a natural fiber. Um, it just that's a recipe oh, wow. for um, brittle, uh, damaged fibers uh, in, in the textiles. Do you, what's your craziest story? I know anyone who works in any business that has to do with protecting clients' things and logistics, and you're doing also going into people's homes, I imagine you have some stories. What's your craziest story you can tell us? One of the great stories uh, that I feel and may not really resonate because unless you're sitting in our seat, but we once had a client who was traveling overseas and then their plans got adjusted at the last minute and we had to reroute a package. And, you know, it was just so important that those pieces made it there and we were able to make it happen. I think developing that insurance coverage with AIG, I think that gives a lot of our members peace of mind. I think in the past they were relying on their contents coverage. They, they had false peace of mind. Uh, now the folks that take the time to uh, inventory and appraise and uh, insure their pieces. Um, you know, that's what we're talking about here, uh, uh, protecting pieces for the long haul. Um, you know, that's that's really what we do. Um, we also, I, I think it's exciting, like a week after the Grammys, um, to see like a dress that like a, you know, an A-list performer wore uh, sitting there, uh, you know, uh, absolutely impeccable, one of a kind, wearable art, and then it's really in our hands to sort of, I you know, determine the best way to have it clean safely, how to box it safely, how to store it. I can only imagine, especially with the with the Grammys, that's like little little pieces and strips of cloth that arranged carefully on a body. Not this one that I'm thinking of. It was a Christian Siriano piece at its widest point. Uh, I'd say about six or seven feet. Um, truly oh spectacular God. and. What makes it special? Yeah, well, that's really <laughs> what I was just going to say is that's where our expertise at Guardrobe comes in. Because if you just say to your housekeeper, uh, well, you know, uh, you know, get it, send it to the dry cleaner and let's store this thing, that's the end of it. I mean, that's the last time you'll ever see it in good condition and wearable. Uh, but with us, I mean, a lot of our members come to us and say, I don't fit into this. I'm not a size four anymore, but I'm saving this for my daughters. Can you preserve these things for 20 years? And and, and we're the only company really that can do that. Um, so that's what we do. And then this entertainer that I'm thinking about or any of the entertainers where we have their, their last year's tour, you know, this is really, you know, historical fashion preservation that we're doing. Uh, I think so, but what did you do with the Christian Siriano? Is it like in a yeah, big box? Yeah, it's about the size of a coffin, honestly. It's, um, yeah, oh my it, God. Uh, you know, and, and we have a few <laughs> oh of God. those, um, you know. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it's not much different than if you loaned a piece to the Met uh, to for their, and they acquired it for their collections or whatever. It's the same processes. You know, our team, they're, you know, they have master's degrees in textiles. They all went to FITM or FIT, and this is their passion. This is what, their specialty is. And um, I feel really confident in all of our, uh, you know, what we call wardrobe managers, all of the arch archivists, um, you know, they they can, you know, like I said, guardrobe means protect clothing. Our promise to our members is ready to wear delivery, even if it comes to us having just been worn on the stage with body tanner and perspiration and, 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 and all of that. 
Our job is to identify the best garment care provider to, to, to clean and sterilize the piece. And then our team archives it, truly archives it, uh, uh, museum boxing it um, for the long haul. And, and when I say museum boxing, it's the same as like your wedding gown, you know, where they give you the gloves and you're really not even supposed to handle it. Uh, without the nitrile gloves on, because just um, body oils and, and lotion on your hands uh, by touching the garment, years later, they will oxidize and you'll see those marks. So it's really imperative that it stays sterile uh, in, you know, in the box. Oh, wait, then I have to ask. I'm sorry, I just have to ask. How do you feel about um, Kim Kardashian wearing Marilyn Monroe's piece? Well, um, you know, at Guardrobe, we have a lot of designer archives and a big part of their PR is to get big time celebrities or, or um, influencers to wear these pieces. So I, I understand. Uh, I don't know if it was something that Ripley's Believe It or Not or whoever owned that piece was trying to do for PR. But I understand, um, you know, if a lot of it is in our care for preservation, but also for inspiration and then also uh, to enhance the brand's image. So uh, I get it. You know, we're a lot of very often we'll deliver pieces to a stylist from uh, one of the design houses that we're archiving for. And the purpose is uh, for the stylist and the entertainer to choose one of those pieces to wear on the red carpet or whatever it may be. So um, I don't really have a problem. Now, uh, my understanding is the thing about her breaking it or, or, or stretching it and, and damaging it was sort of a fake story. Uh, but, um, you know, this is pretty much par for the course. If you're trying to publicize your fashion brand and you can get Kim Kardashian to wear something at any point anywhere, there's very few brands who would say no. So you wouldn't, you you don't cry when you see these, those things going out of guardrobe uh, doors to be worn by know, somebody. If I cried every time I saw, you know, textiles not being treated right. as they should, uh, you know, Kleenex would, would stock price would go up. So um, there's, uh, okay. you know, people don't know what they don't know. So mm -hmm. I see things all the yeah. time, you know, and these are really savvy people. They 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 know fashion. Uh, they know. What's the worst thing you've seen? What's the worst thing you've ever witnessed being done to a closet or? Uh, an we have an entertainer who's iconic. And um, he knew he needed us. Um, he was storing all of his old costume, stage wear, not costume, but stage wear, right in a, like a little closet right next to his studio and uh, like his home music studio. And um, when, as soon as we hit the door, the mildew, smell, uh -huh. the, like it was just, you know, that smell where you're like, yeah. Was there, was there a flood? Like, are we near, <laughs> you know, it, it, oh. like, are we near a, a lake that rose? Like, it, it stunk, you know what I mean? And, I mean, that's why we were there. But I, you just wouldn't think that someone at that level uh, with these type of pieces that, you know, if I showed you some of you'd be like, you'd know immediately who it was uh, just by seeing the garment, not even this person with the garment. Um, that's what surprised me and, and sort of shocked me was just like, he has the means, uh, he must smell it. And yet <laughs> there was, you know, it was almost, it was more his, his team that, that steered him to us, not even him it's himself. It's like when somebody has a dog that's smelly and, and, and the owner just is yeah. used to the smell. <laughs> Nose yeah, blind. Exactly. <laughs> what, what does his name rhyme with? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> well, you know, um, 
we're, we're extremely discreet here at Gardra. We've been lucky over the years. All I can say is, uh, you know, uh, we've been really lucky. Some of the celebrities and entertainers we work with, they've just gone out of their way to promote us to the media or to their friends. Uh, I think because they love their clothes. Um, they genuinely believe we're a service uh, that, um, you know, their friend or their colleague uh, would truly appreciate. Like I said, we're a need-based service. Either you have, uh, you know, it, it might be one, uh, you know, couture piece, or it might be a closet full. Uh, either you have uh, something that requires, you know, the special attention and special handling uh, that Guardrobe provides, or you don't. And we really don't have any competitors. Uh, it's sort of do it yourself or hire us. And that's why I'm more than happy to provide the tips on our blog and, and to your to your listeners, because I understand, you know, we, our, our rates start at $400 per month. Uh, although that's less than a, a parking space in Manhattan, your typical uh, up and coming fashionista in, in you know, in, in the middle of the country, uh, $400 a month is what they spend on their fashion. They're not going to spend it on, uh, on, on protecting their clothes. We can help you uh, with, with, you know, anyone can protect their clothing, um, you know, like the thing, you know, shoes and boot trees and things like that, acid-free tissue. These are things that you can get at a container store or online. They're not expensive, but, you know, just the simple act of putting in a shoe tree or a boot tree uh, could, could extend the life uh, and to, you know, of that boot in particular um, for years and years. And, and, and you know, the, the, the shoe trees, they absorb moisture, so it eliminates that, that, um, that mold and mildew issue. The wood, the wood ones, I take it you don't use no, we, plastic we don't. ones? We, you know, I, I recommend the wood ones because they absorb the moisture as well. So for us, your assignment is to give us your list yeah. of best hangers. And shoe trees. And shoe trees. If you could, th- if you could yeah, throw in the shoe trees. You know, trees. Uh, to, you know awesome. to a certain extent, like I said, the hangers is a there's an aesthetics aspect to that mm-hmm. as well, um, but you want to have uh, various types of hangers. It doesn't matter if it's wood or plastic or whatever. Um, things you know, things like that are less important. Uh, but you know, using the right hanger for the right type of garment and the right size, okay? Because someone who's you know, three hundred pounds, they're they're they're. Um, Hangers need to be a lot wide, uh, longer or wider, uh, not wider, longer than, um, you know, than someone who weighs 120 pounds. All right. You are super awesome for coming on with us today. I mean, I, I really, um, I could nerd out <laughs> even longer on the best hangers. I'm going to wait for your list. Doug, thank you very much. Super helpful. Thank you for the kind words and thanks for the opportunity. I had a great time. Bye. Okay. Anybody got hot buttons? I have a hot button. I have a guess what your hot button is. Okay, so shall you tell me what my hot button is? First of all, is it about fashion? No. Yes, okay, so my guess about your hot button is about what was revealed this week from a secret recording <gasps> from the LA City Council. Oh my God, you God. Was it? Am I right? Yes, And yes. thank God, because we all yes. need to talk about this. Oh I feel God. like I should win something. I spent all day <laughs> yesterday on Twitter just trying to find out what the latest was is anybody resigning? I'm so disgusted. I mean, honestly. that's a wor- that's it's like the worst leaked recording I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, truly. It's, it's truly, it's horrifying. It's disheartening. It's it's depressing. Um, imagine all the other conversations we that yeah. aren't leaked. And who did it? Um, who did it? Like, thank God yeah, they did. I'm sure they're wondering who did it. 
Let's back up. Okay, so we have three Los Angeles City um, Council members and the head of the local Teamsters Union having a meeting a year ago to discuss how to carve up the districts because mm-hmm. they're redistricting, at, they were at the time. So that actually, the purpose of the meeting has almost gotten lost because of the horror of what they were saying at the meeting. But the, the fact that the meeting even took place is gross. It took place at the Teamsters offices. And that's where there was something that came out today that said, apparently there have been other illegal, illegal, quote, you know, recordings. And, and the conversation they had was um, about redistricting, but also using incredibly racist mm. terms yes. to describe um, the Black children of their colleagues and Oaxacan immigrants. Um and um, kind of callously, casually <laughs> using extremely racist language extremely. Um, to, to talk about some of their colleagues and their constituents. And it's a, a incredibly disturbing. <laughs> yeah, R- including the, the, the president of the city council called the two-year-old child of a, fe- a fellow counselor, who the child is Black, called, called the child a little yeah. monkey. I mean, it was just, it got, it was... So in the gutter. It was so in the gutter. And saying that children should be beaten. I mean, I listened to every one of the the recordings that were let out uh, yeah, a few times because I just couldn't believe it. And I was trying to figure out who was saying what and like what the context was. And I mean, yeah. And then then you zoom out and it's about dividing up up their districts (laughs) according to race and how to exclude people according. I mean, it was, it was. Very disturbing. Very, very disturbing. I live in the district that they said that they wanted to chop up and put through the meat grinder. That's mm. my district. <laughs> Anybody else have a hot button? Mine is just the fact that they're trying to make skinny eyebrows come back. Oh, um, yes. That's not I'm right. really, like, I'm sorry, kids. This is where I draw the line. I'm keeping my eyebrows for the next decade. Good. I will not um, participate in this no eyebrow, thin eyebrow trend. It's hard to grow them back after you make them super thin. And they look terrible super thin, especially when they start growing back. Ugh. I love a thick eyebrow. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Highlights the eyes. Gorgeous. Yeah. And it's such a young person's game because as you get older, ladies, Mm. you do lose your hair a little bit. And I would not take that risk. Okay. Thumbs down to the skinny eyebrows. Sheila, how about you? This is so random, but it was so interesting to me. Governor Newsom signed a bill um, that would make jaywalking legal um, starting next year. And the thing (laughs) that I found really interesting about that is that um, tickets are disproportionately given to Mm low-income communities. Of course. Who have to walk more. It's used to over-police low-income communities, um, and low-income communities often don't have the funding or infrastructure to provide safe crosswalks anyway. Um, And jaywalking is a term— was promoted by pro-car interests in the 20s. Like, that's what it came mm. from. And they tried to brand people who were walking as jaywalkers. Like, it was a kind of derogatory term mm. for people who walked on the streets. Really? And so... Oh, I didn't know So that. even better, even better to, to ban jaywalking. So I thought that was cool. Yay for that. Okay. That is all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at HotButtonsPod and now on Instagram at HotButtons.Pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support and your ratings. 
If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail. We love those at our new call-in line. It's 508-622-5361. So give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. <laughs> 